0: With the word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for the supreme example of love, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for his sheep. Thankful that he laid down his life for us. Lord, how could we come to you apart from him? And so uh, we pray that you would help us to learn from his example and learn from the negative example of the Corinthians and from the positive example of Paul and uh, and be those who love one another as an expression of our love for you. Help us to understand this passage, illuminate our minds by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Example number one. The piano player is skillfully playing canon and D while the bride walks down the aisle. The whole crowd is standing and excited about this new couple who have come to be joined in marriage. The father hands the bride away, and the pastor opens up his Bible to give a biblical charge to the couple, and he reads from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. And he goes on, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love never fails. Example number two. The kids have been fighting all day. Mom had to call Dad at work to tell him what was going on. She disciplined them and then said, wait until your father gets home. Dad gets home and he is frustrated that the kids are still fighting. And especially considering all that they have been taught and all the amount of time that he's had to deal with them in recent days and weeks. Especially the older three kids who have trusted in Christ and have experienced the love of Jesus and paying for their sins and they still are warring with one another. And the dad opens the Bible and reads, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Now, you kids, does that describe you today? Or would your actions toward each other and toward your mom be better described as hatred? Because love does not brag and it is not arrogant. It isn't rude or selfish. Two examples. Two different tones... In how the same passage is used, which of these two examples better fit with the tone of what's going on in Corinth? Example number one, at a wedding ceremony, or example number two, at a time of discipline by a father? Example number two, right? This is not this passage that we're going to look at. We often think about it in terms of example number one, because that's where we most often hear this passage. But this is not a happy-go-lucky appeal for everyone to keep on doing what you're doing, and this love thing is really beautiful. It is beautiful, but this is actually a sharp rebuke by Paul. And the reason that we know that is because of the context. In the context, Paul is discussing the proper use of spiritual gifts. Some were boasting about their gifts and exalting one gift over another, and they were walking around like a strutting turkey, you know, saying, this is the gift that I have, and... Don't you wish you had my gift and everybody else's gifts are worthless? And Paul is essentially essentially saying to them here in chapter 13, You fools. Your gifts are to be expressed in love. But that is not the way that you're acting right now. Let me read our text for us. We'll start in the last verse of chapter 12, and then I'll read through chapter 13. This is the Word of God. But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing." And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. And if there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Very simply tonight, I think what Paul is telling us through the Holy Spirit is that believers must excel in love. This is an essential virtue of every Christian. It must be genuine Christian love. Paul's going to give three reasons why believers must excel in love. Number one, believers must excel in love because without love, everything else that we do in life is useless. We must excel in love because everything else we do in life is useless without love, in verses 1 through 3. Love is the fuel of knowledge. So here, in verses 1 through 3, he lists three main uh, items Knowledge, this miraculous faith, and then self-sacrifice. And he's saying all of those things are of no value. They're not fueled by love. You know, you could have a captivating speaker who can mesmerize audiences with his ability, like verse 1 is talking about. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. But what is the best speaker without love? According to verse 1. What is the best speaker without love? Okay, A gong or a clanging symbol Loud, annoying, useless sound. On its own, it's of no value. And so the Corinthians' use of their showy spiritual gifts was all about them. It wasn't about the church. It wasn't about loving the church. What about a person who has these great prophetic gifts in the beginning of verse 2? Or what if they have the supernatural knowledge? He's going to come back to those those three at the end of the text. He's talking about these, these desired spiritual gifts, these spiritual, these showy spiritual gifts that really uh, put a person out there, put them up on a pedestal in the minds of the Corinthians. How good is a person with these great prophetic gifts and spe- supernatural knowledge without love, according to verse 2? How great is he? He is nothing. Look at the end of the verse. Right? If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, dot, 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 end of the verse, I am nothing. So if these speaking gifts, these prophetic gifts, these gifts of knowledge, I think this is supernatural knowledge, we'll get to this, If you have all those things, it's of no value if you don't have love. Love is the fuel that makes those things valuable. Secondly, love is the fuel of of this miraculous faith at the end of verse 2. And if I have all faith, this is not talking about saving faith. In the context, we're talking about these showy spiritual gifts. So this is probably um, what Paul was talking about in chapter 12. Um, Let's see if I can find it probably up in verse 8, verse 9, right to another faith by the same Spirit. And I argued then, which I'm going to say is the same idea here, not talking about saving faith. That's something every Christian has. But this is rather a spiritual gift that they would have a a miraculous, uh, uh, an ability to have a supernatural amount of faith so that they could do what? Look at verse 2 of chapter 13. If I have all faith, so as to do what? Remove mountains. So this is some kind of faith that is so extraordinary that it has the ability to do the unthinkable. How valuable is that miraculous, supernatural faith without love? According to verse 2, how valuable is it? It's worthless because I am nothing if I don't have love. Love is the fuel of, of this other showy gift. And then, how about self-sacrifice? Verse 3. This isn't a showy gift, but this is actually an action. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned. So what about a person who, who, who gives up huge portions of their assets to other people? What about a person who, who actually gave all of his assets to other people? But he did it without love. What profit would a person like that be, according to verse 3? Nothing. It profits me nothing. Well, what about self-sacrifice? What about the greatest... It's one thing to give up all your assets, right? To drain your bank account, sell your house, give all that stuff away. That would be amazing. But what if you actually gave up your life? What if you actually sacrificed your life so that someone else could live? But you did it without love. Again, what profit is that, according to verse 3? Nothing. Nothing. So do you see the point in verses 1 through 3? Paul's laying it on thick. Actions don't mean anything without love. Now, imagine how impressed we would be with a person who had all these qualities in verses 1 through 3. Okay? You might have to step back into the first century in order to see these spiritual gifts. But, but I'm talking about a tongue-speaking, prophetic man who receives direct revelation who has extraordinary faith to do miracles, who is a philanthropist, a man who's willing to give his life as a sacrifice for others. This is what the Corinthians are aspiring to. This is what we want to be. We want people to see us like this. I mean, we would be impressed by a person like that, but Paul says, who cares about all those things if he's doing them just for himself? Who cares if He's doing all those things just in order to be recognized by people, if He's doing it in order to get a monument built to His name, who cares? If He does all of those things without love, then how much of those actions will actually last on the final day? They're all going to be burned up because they'll be wood, hay, and stubble. So, these dramatic spiritual displays that the Corinthians were boasting about and promoting, when they are done without love, they profit the church nothing. They were using their spiritual gifts to promote themselves. But remember what the purpose of our spiritual gifts was from last time? What were they? What was the purpose? What was it? To edify the church. We want to do whatever we can through the power of the Spirit, what He has given to us in order to be maximally edifying to the church. And that's not what they were doing. It wasn't about other people. It wasn't about building up the church. It was about building up their own name. So first, believers must excel in love because without love, everything else that we do in life is useless. Any questions on that before we move to number two? Because Sometimes to wait till the end and hard to remember what you, you were thinking about earlier on Paul. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, good. That's uh, a wrongly directed love. Yeah. No. No one ever hated himself. That's what Ephesians five says, right? But nourished and cherished himself. And so that's how a husband ought to love his wife. But but yeah, you're right. Second reason that believers must excel in love, we must excel in love, is because without love, we are insufferable, self-centered monsters. Verses 4 through 7. Without love, we are insufferable, self-centered monsters. And the reason I'm using those words is because what you're going to find in this list of expectations that Paul has or this definition of what love is, or really description of what love is, is that it's all about self and it's all about being uh, unbearable to other people, Un- unwilling to be patient with people. The, the kind of explosion type of um, of uh, personality is probably not the way to put it because it sounds like, oh, well, that's the way you're made. You can't help it. But, but the, the person who's just impatient insufferable, self-centered monsters. Believers must excel in love. Love must describe us as Christians. But that's not what described the Corinthian Christians. What you notice as we go through these lists, through this list here in verses 4-7, through is that the things that Paul calls for are the opposite of what the Corinthians are. The things that he says love is not, that's what they are. See if you can think back to some examples throughout the, 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 um, the letter that actually describe what they're not supposed to be. First, love is patient. Verse 4, love is patient. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, as love is. Patience is the willingness to forbear with people who are difficult rather than explode in anger. He's going to come back to this idea, love bears all things. It forbears. It, it's long-suffering. It's willing to, to work with people despite their, despite their temperament or obstinacy or, or whatever. Love is patient. It's not all the... Um, think about the uh, Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 11 when they weren't waiting for one another. Right, they were just going on with their meals and their we'll come back to that. Second love is kind, kindness and other fruit of the spirit. Considerate of other people and their needs. This is what we're constantly reminding our children about, right? Be ye kind when there's warring and fighting and sometimes it's not like, Well, you never told me I couldn't do that Well then we just go to the kind of the catch all verse. For parents, Ephesians four thirty-two: Be kind to one another. Okay, that is, be considerate of of their needs and their desires. Not always making it about yourself. Move to help the person. Move with compassion to to take care of, of their needs and, and even their desires. Love is kind. Not not the Corinthians at all. Or well, I sh- should say, not. The Corinthians, to the largest degree, they they were more marked by by, um, by lack of kindness. Number three, love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. It's not um, the personification of love here. Is not a person who's concerned about himself and, and who becomes resentful towards someone else when they have something that. They think they deserve. Remember in chapter three, the Paul said, You are filled with jealousy and strife. This is why all these conflicts are coming up and these divisions. It's all about your jealousy. And now he's saying here, Love is not jealous. How about the next one here in the middle of verse four love does not brag. Love does not brag. What does a person do who's not being acknowledged for the good that they do? Right? We kind of... We are aware of what we're doing and what motives we have and what acts of service that we do. And when people don't recognize us, what do we often do? Right? We, we brag. We boast about our own deeds. Now, we Christians may not be as brash about our boasting or our bragging as as maybe the Corinthians were but but maybe we're a little bit more refined maybe a humble brag right people think I have really beautiful hair what do you think that's the humble brag just get them talking about something that you've worked hard on I mean I I haven't I, it takes me three seconds to get my hair in place so um, but this is uh, another one that you know that we have to be taught because by nature we like people to notice us and we want people to notice us and we find out skill, we actually use skillful ways to make people notice us. We shouldn't be praising ourselves. Proverbs 27 2, a verse that that I'm reminded of often, and I use, um, I hate to use my children as whipping posts here tonight, but. Um, Let another man praise you and not your own lips. The the natural thing to do is, look what I did. But we should not be praising ourselves. Let someone else do that. And uh, don't force them to do that, right? Love is not bragging. Finally, in verse 4, love is not arrogant. The Greek word that's translated arrogant is used five other times in 1 Corinthians. And every time, Paul uses it to describe the Corinthians. So he's saying, don't be arrogant, but turn back to chapter 4. Let me just show you a couple examples. Chapter 4. Verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I figuratively apply to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. In other words, that's what's going on here. And, show that further look at verse 18 now some have become arrogant as though i were not coming to you chapter 5 verse 2 you have become arrogant so the only time that paul uses this word arrogant actually he uses it one time outside of one well, only one other time in the rest of the new testament outside of the first corinthians the rest of the, his uses of arrogant are all here in first corinthians and they're all used to describe the Corinthians, and their actions besides this one here in 1 Corinthians 13. So what is he saying here in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is not arrogant. In other words, love is not like you. That's why I say the force of this letter is a rebuke. The force of this chapter is a rebuke. You, Corinthians, need to grow up. You're messing around with tongues and healings and and all your great spiritual showy gifts and you don't love each other you are arrogant verse 5 love does not act unbecomingly fortunately i think the new american standard often is choppy and this is one of the places where it's not really helpful because we don't i don't remember the last time i used the word unbecomingly okay it'd be probably just easier to say love is not rude the opposite of order orderliness and decency it's not rude an example of their rudeness is found in chapter 11 verse 22 he says what do you not have houses in which to eat and drink or you despise the church of god and shame those who have nothing what shall i say to you shall i praise you and this i will not praise you how rude of you you wealthy people getting together before the service because the, the poor people have to work later. You're getting there early, going in your little uh, confined private dining room, eating your big luxurious meals that these poor people would never be able to eat, even though they're members of the same church. And then you go on taking the Lord's Supper with just your little elite group and not waiting for the rest. You think I'm going to praise you for that? How rude of you. So he says in chapter 13 love is not rude. And then next in verse 5, love does not seek its own. Again, proud, self-seeking, unconcerned about others. How is this going to affect me? I don't care about how it affects other people. Next, love is not provoked. Other translations call this love is not irritable, love is not easily angered. I think that those are helpful. So in other words, uh, love is not provoked to unrighteous wrath. Next, The end of verse five: Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It's not resentful or looking to be a victim all the time. The victim, the 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 perpetual victim, is the one who's saying, "Oh, this person's constantly doing this, or these people are constantly doing this, and it's all about me. Oh, poor me! Look at how people mistreat me, and so I'm going to keep a record of how how that's happening." Love doesn't do that. Verse six: Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Ooh, that church member fell into sin. What a delicious tragedy. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but instead, at the end of verse 6 rejoices with the truth. It takes pleasure when truth is exalted, when truth wins. I'm not excited when somebody falls into sin or when unrighteousness has its way. And then these next four all go together verse 7 love bears all things believes all things hopes all things and endures all things first it bears all things it forbears all things it's willing to cover minor offenses uh, offenses rather than parade them around or turn them into an issue of public gossip or public fodder hey did you hear about this little thing that was going on let's talk about it now we're going to forbear going to overlook those minor offenses be willing to to let them go and love believes all things. We need to keep this in in balance with the command or the um, not the command but the the pattern in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs fourteen fifteen. The naive believes everything, and Paul's saying here that love believes everything, believes all things. So what's going on here? Well, the naive is the one who just is gullible. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying be gullible and you know, don't check people out and um, you know you don't have to you don't have to think very deeply. just just believe whatever they say. Instead, he's saying, you know give the person the benefit of the doubt is how we might say it in our day. Believe the best about the person uh, about the person. So I think this is talking about how we deal with one another. We might look at this and say, well, believes all things talking about believing all the things in the faith or all the things in the doctrine, but I think in the context, it seems like all four of these have to do with how I treat my brother. So it believes the best things about him. Not naively, not gull- gullibly, but with a heart of love. That's what love does. right? Aren't, aren't you grateful that you have friends who love you, family members who love you, and they don't initially think the worst about you whenever you do Something or even something that may be questioned by other people. Aren't you thankful that you have people that, that don't think the worst about you? Instead, they think the best about you. They're like, well, oh, I know this person. And, and I know that, um, that they, they, their heart is likely in the right place. And we, we'd almost rather be wronged in believing the best about a person than to, to believe the worst about them and and do it with with a heart of, um, with a cold dark heart, I guess we could say. Thirdly, love hopes all things. Love hopes all things. Leon Morris describes this describes it this way in his commentary: not an unreasoning optimism. Again, not gullibility, or like kind of the hide your head in the sand kind of thing. Everything's going to be okay. Um, but rather it's a confidence that looks to see the triumph in the grace of God. You know, this situation is beyond my ability to control, my ability to influence even, and yet I believe in the grace of God. I believe that the grace of God can triumph. So while I'm not going to be unrealistically optimistic, I am going to hope for the best. And then, love endures all things. Again, the parallelism in these four um, last statements here in verse 7 suggests to me that they carry a similar idea of that is how we treat people. This is not talking about enduring trials. I endure all kinds of trials. We, we can find that in other parts of the Scripture, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. I think what he's talking about is enduring people. Having to endure difficult people. Have you ever had to endure a difficult fellow church member despite their immaturity or their obstinacy or their childishness? That's love. That's what love looks like. It's willing to bear up with somebody and endure with somebody despite their sin even. Paul's saying, that's not you. you. Corinthians, it's not you. Believers must excel in love because without love, everything else that we do in life is useless. Believers must excel in love because without love, we are insufferable, self centered monsters. And then finally, in verses 8 through 13, believers must excel in love because love is permanent. Love is permanent. Verses 8 through 12, he shows us that love never fails. And then, verse 13, love never ceases. Paul highlights the permanency of love by showing the finiteness of other good things that the Corinthians exalted. What were they exalting? According to verses uh, to verse 8, three primary things, right? Gifts of prophecy, gifts of tongues, gifts of knowledge. The gifts of prophecy is, is not just someone who speaks on behalf of God, but actually someone who during that time would actually receive direct revelation from God. A prophet, Paul's saying don't exalt those things because those things are going to be done away with. Look at verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So he's saying this prophecy that you are exalting as so great, he's not trying to minimize it or say it has no value. It does have value. He's saying without love, it's actually of no value. And it's temporary, right? In, in contrast the love, which he's going to show, is actually permanent. What about the gifts of tongues? Or the gift of tongues there in the middle of verse 8. If there are tongues, they will cease. So if there's this prophecy at the beginning of verse 8, they'll be done away. If there are tongues or gifts of, the gifts of tongues, they will, they will cease. The tongues were the supernatural ability to speak in an unknown language. And this seems to be what the Corinthians love the most. They exalted the most. Paul's saying it's all about you. It's about being seen. It's not about the church. It's not about love. And then the third one, at the end of verse 8, if there's knowledge, it will be done away. Now, this is not talking about just knowledge about God. Our knowledge about God will never go away. Um, that is, throughout eternity, we will have the storehouse of knowledge that we've built up in this lifetime and will build on that. But the gift of knowledge has ceased in, in our time. That's what I'm going to suggest. Paul's saying future, but for us it's actually past. With the completion of the canon, the gifts of knowledge is, some kind of miraculous gift that, that the Spirit gave to be able to discern things that otherwise wouldn't be, be discernible. Paul's saying, and the reason I think that is just because in the context he seems to be talking about things that will pass away. And and has knowledge passed away for us? I mean, just general knowledge of the Scriptures and about God. right? So this is some kind of supernatural, spiritual gift kind of knowledge that was given to them. In all of these things, prophecy, tongues, and this miraculous knowledge can be described as a partial revelation or incomplete. Look at verse 9. For we know in part... Okay, there's the gift of knowledge. And we prophesy in part... So, what is this part? Well, at the end of verse 10, it tells us the partial will be done away. So, in some way, this miraculous gift of knowledge and this miraculous gift of prophecy, and I would say, by association, since the tongues was included up there in verse 8, then also tongues, it includes all of these, all of those things are the partial... And the partial is going to give way to what in verse 9? The perfect. So the perfect is going to take the place of the partial. The perfect is going to replace the partial. So in other words, what we're talking about is Revelation. Not the book of Revelation, but the way that God spoke to His people at that time. Part of the way that God spoke to His people was through prophecy and knowledge and... And tongues. That was one of the ways that God spoke to them. But, but what the text is saying is that that was a partial revelation, a temporary revelation. It's going to be done away with so that the perfect revelation can take its place. And when it, when it, we're talking about perfect, we're not saying that this stuff was untrue or you know some people were false in there. No, what he's saying is complete, finished. So three comparisons that prove that the perfect revelation will replace the partial revelation. Three comparisons here in verses uh, 11 and 12. Comparison number one, child and adult. Comparison number two, mirror and face-to-face. Comparison number three, knowing partially to knowing fully. So here Paul's going to use some comparisons and the first he's going to use a metaphor that is A comparison that uses like or as. So here's the first one. When I was a child, I used to speak, notice, like a child. There's the metaphor. So I used to have.